0: Bye. You only get one chance to make a good first impression. So whether it's a job interview or the first time you meet your prospective in-laws, you really don't want to F it up. And of course, the same can be said for a UFC debut. While winning is always paramount, an impressive introduction on the world's biggest stage can do wonders for you and your fan base. But the UFC isn't a fairy tale business, and of course, there isn't always a happy ending. My name is Balian from MMA on point, and these are 10 fighters who've had their debuts derailed. Damn, boy. Number 10, Mateusz Gamrot. On the heels of Jan Blachowicz becoming the second Polish UFC champion, Mateusz Gamrot, one of the country's hottest commodities, made his promotional debut. And in many ways, he was a surprising coup for the UFC. Remember, KSW is to Poland, what the UFC is to the United States. So there's plenty of upside to staying put. But after he admitted that he wanted bigger challenges and believed he could only find those away from home, it was clear he'd be leaving. And to be fair, he essentially accomplished everything he could in KSW. Throughout his undefeated 14-fight stay, he became their first ever double champion, winning titles at featherweight and lightweight. So with those credentials and a lot of goodwill, Polish fans were paying very close attention to his UFC debut on Fight Island and that was supposed to come against Magomed Mustafaev, but after Mustafaev was forced out, Guram Kutaladzey stepped in on short notice. Yet, Kutaladzey didn't fight like somebody who lacked preparation. He arrived in shape, fought with conviction, and won a split decision, proving that Gambrot was not the only prospect there that night. Still, Kutaladzey spent his entire post-fight interview refusing to accept the decision, admitting it, quote, It's not my fight. This is bullshit, number one bullshit But honestly, it was so close, and with the majority of media scorecards siding with him, he should be happy collecting such a valuable scalp. Number nine, Carlos Condit. The WEC's legacy is that of a promotion which showcased many of MMA's greatest diminutive fighters, and while at, it didn't actually start off that way. Founded in 2001, it utilized whatever weight classes were available to them, opening the doors for future stars like Glover Teixeira, Tim Kennedy, Mike Swick, Gilbert Melendez, Chris Lieben, and Nick Diaz to pass through. However, their USP changed when Zufa, the UFC's parent company, purchased them in 2006. They ran as an independent function, focusing on the lighter weight classes and allowing the UFC to absorb their talent at higher. Condit was the welterweight champion and was a very impressive addition to the roster having been so dominant at the time. He fought five times in the WEC and only won. His debut had no gold involved because the rest saw him win or defend his title. Yet his appeal wasn't his success per se. It was all about how he was earning it known as the natural born killer which was so appropriate all of his wins came by way of finish but this wasn't some new trend take his first 10 professional wins for example which all ended by stoppage in just little over the first minute now that is super impressive especially at welterweight Anyway, he drew Martin Kampmann for his UFC debut, and it was a good platform for him to stake his claim as a top contender, seeing as the bout main-evented a Spike TV-aired fight night leading into the premiere of Tough Nine. But Kampmann played the spoiler, earning a hard-fought decision and spoiling another UFC debut. Number 8. Marlon Moraes. Yeah, so there was a lot to be excited about when Marlon Marais signed with the UFC. Aside from his big personality, he ticked all of the boxers. He was unbeaten in 13 bouts, fighting out of a good camp headed by Ricardo Almeida. He was a current WSOF bantamweight champion with five consecutive defenses. And at 28 years of age, he was just entering his athletic prime. See, all the boxes ticked. There's also something to be said about how encouraging his signing was for Brazilian fans because outside of Amanda Nunes, most of their top fighters were now far adrift from gold. But even outside rooting interest, it was an exciting signing for fans generally because there were so many compelling permutations involving him in the already burgeoning bantamweight division. Cody Garbrandt had only just become UFC champion, and how about former champion TJ Dillashaw, or even Dominic Cruz himself, who he had previously called out after his win at WSOF 32. But all of those had to wait until Marlon got past Rafael Assuncao. But Assuncao, who has this unique ability to make great fighters look average, proved to be too tricky for his debuting countryman, winning a close split decision. And, at least for the moment, Miraz's hype train slowed down to a crawl. Number seven, Luke Rockhold. Luke Rockhold has never lacked confidence. We've seen that throughout his UFC career and even on the Millionaire Matchmaker. You rather swallow or spit, girl? What? That's what? inappropriate. Yeah, only a man with the utmost confidence says that shit on television. He's always been self-assured, even back in Strikeforce, and that's not a character flaw either. In fact, I seriously believe that you need it to be successful in this sport. Plus, confidence can be contagious, and that was true with Luke. Well, at least for me. Anyway, I enjoyed his moxie after beating Jack Array for the middleweight Strikeforce title. He looked like the real deal and acted like it too, baiting Dana White to send some UFC talent over so he could truly prove himself. I always look to bigger and better things, and uh, if the UFC wants to bring in some, some top contenders, i are more than welcome to, uh, to welcome them in, uh, in our hexagon, like uh, Gilbert would say. And this wasn't like somebody in Bellator saying it now, knowing that it'll never happen. Either Zufa owned Strikeforce and there were rumors about the UFC allowing some level of talent sharing like they eventually did with Ed Herman. And although that never came to fruition with Rockhold, he wouldn't have to wait that much longer for his UFC competition. In 2013, less than two years after the acquisition, Strikeforce closed its doors and all of their fighters moved onto the UFC roster. Rockhold's first assignment was against Vitor Belfort, who was coming off a stunning head kick win against Michael Bisping. And considering Vitor's reputation, it was a massive opportunity for Rockhold. But it was a chemically invigorated Vitor Belfort that stopped Luke in the first round with another vicious kick, spoiling one more UFC debut. Number 6. Gilbert Melendez Just like the aforementioned Rockhold, Gilbert Melendez was one of the Strikeforce champions who joined the UFC when the rosters merged. The difference was that Melendez was, quite clearly, an elite of his division regardless of promotion. With Rockhold, questions still remained. And this was evident of the matchmaking as well. Whilst Rockhold was gifted a contender, it was Gilbert who was presented with a title shot against then-champion Benson Henderson. And you wouldn't have heard many fans complaining about it either. And that's because you'd be hard-pressed finding an informed lightweight with the credentials of El Nino. He was the first-ever WEC lightweight champion, a two-time Strike Force lightweight champion, and had only lost one in his last seven and had since avenged that defeat to Josh Thompson. And so for the hardcore fans, the opportunity against Benson was a real treat, especially for those stationed in San Jose who got to watch the matchup. This was Melendez's backyard and a place where he'd competed numerous times and thus he had a passionate inbuilt fan base that showed up in its droves because, you know, you were allowed to go to events back then. Do you remember? Oh, those were the days. But unfortunately, it didn't go their boy's way. He lost a close split decision to the champ who had a knack for convincing judges he did enough in Closely contested fights. And while it's a decision still debated today, the result changed the trajectory of Gilbert's career for the worst. Number 5. Anthony Pettis If you want to see an example of someone taking full advantage of an opportunity, go watch Anthony Pettis at WEC 53. You should remember it as that time he ran off the cage and kicked Benson Henderson in the face? Hmm, Yes, but when contextualized, it meant so much more. Remember, WEC 53 was the promotion swan song, and its talent, including Henderson and Pettis, would officially become UFC fighters at the end of the night. But that did not mean that Title was worthless. Firstly, if you care a lot about history, being the last world champion of a prestigious organization like the WEC meant a lot. And secondly, the UFC stipulated that the winner would fight their champion to unify the belts. So yes, it was a big night for Pettis, and even bigger still when his audacious kick appeared all over SportsCenter. It was even named the number two play of the week, and later the number eight play of the year. All before the UFC got cozy with ESPN. But his. Fortune didn't last because after Frankie Edgar and Gray Maynard fought to an epic championship draw, the UFC announced an immediate rematch. So, Pettis, not wanting to wait, took a fight against Clay Guida and not only lost, but the fight juxtaposed everything the media has espoused about him in the lead up. He was must see TV, but not this night as Guida neutered his flashy offense en route to an underwhelming 30 27 victory. Sorry, Anthony, it just wasn't meant to be. Number 4. Eddie Alvarez. For 10 years outside of the UFC, Eddie Alvarez produced some of the most exciting fights you will ever see. And this wasn't just wild entertainment, he was incredibly skilled, and there is a reason why they called him the Underground King. By the time he landed in Bellator, he had won the Bodog Fight welterweight title and had that hugely impressive run in the Dream Lightweight Grand Prix in 2008, beating the lights of Yakim Hansen and Tatsura Kawajiri. His Bellator stint would then solidify his place among the very best lightweights in the world as he won the inaugural lightweight tournament, capturing the divisional title as a result. He then went 9-1 in the promotion overall with his only loss coming against my friend and yours, Michael Chandler, in the first of their two epic encounters. And it was after the Chandler rematch where he finally signed with the UFC following a legal battle over his contract with Bellator. For Insider fans, this was massive because we finally found out if he was really as good as we had all thought. Plus, the initial matchmaking was narratively intriguing as well. The Underground King taking on one of the UFC's foremost and most fought fighters in donald cerrone and it started well for the outsider alvarez who followed the blueprint on cowboy pressure him early and often but cerrone survived and turned it around to win a comfortable unanimous decision number three hector lombard not every fighter looks intimidating look at duho troy but that's fine it's not a requirement to be a savage look at do Ho Choi. Still, there's something fascinating about those who look like they were built to fight other human beings for money and dominance. Like Mike Tyson, Wanderlei Silva, Melvin Manhoff, they have this inexplicable aura that can't be developed. It's an, an inherent thing. Well, Hector Lombard had a bit of that too. On paper, he was a consummate martial artist with a fourth-degree judo black belt and Olympic pedigree. But that only told half the story because visually and athletically, he was a different kind of beast firstly he was jacked i mean look at that guy and secondly he had a penchant for knockouts despite his judo lineage and this combination served him well he became bellator middleweight champion and ended his run there undefeated with a 30 2 record having been unbeaten in his last 25 fights so when he signed with the UFC in 2012, he really was the epitome of a mega free agent. And that's why the UFC was so liberal with its spending. According to then Bellator CEO Bjorn Rebney, Lombard's new UFC contract netted him a generous $400,000 signing bonus on top of a $300,000 starting purse per fight plus pay-per-view points. But all that money didn't stop Tim Bosch beating a debuting Lombard in an underwhelming fight on a disappointing card which has since been labeled the worst fight in UFC history. I think you look at a guy like like Lombard um, you know comes in on a 25 fight win streak you know and the fight was horrible. Number two, Brock Lesnar. Brock Lesnar was already a bona fide superstar when he arrived in MMA and only got bigger as he developed his skills, but you have to look at his success in WWE to understand why he was such an attraction. And while from an MMA perspective that means nothing, but you can step back and look at it from a commercial and athletic perspective and find some level of appreciation. An almost instant ascent like that just doesn't happen, yet it spilled over to his other pursuits too, most notably MMA. The idea of a near 30-year-old neophyte wrestling background or not competing professionally in MMA at an elite level in 2006 was pretty absurd. Yet after crushing Min Soo Kim in his debut, he signed with the UFC and immediately hopped into the deep end against former champion Frank Mir. And this in some ways appeased some of the more cynical fans. Brock was serious and so was the UFC. Still, commerce was indeed a factor and thanks to Ken Shamrock, the UFC understood the value of crossover stars but for Brock the fight wasn't as successful as the numbers which were excellent the pay-per-view did reported 650,000 buys and was the second biggest of the year after UFC 91 which was headlined by yep you guessed it Brock! However, despite dominating Mir early and after Steve Mazzagati took a point for a clearly inadvertent strike to the back of a scrambling Mir's head, Mir caught a knee bar and got the tap. And number 1. C.M. I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Let's go to the real number one. Jose Canseco. Imagine. Okay, sorry. Number one, Mauricio Shogun Hua. Of all of the fighters moving to the UFC after Zufa's acquisition of pride, arguably Mauricio Shogun Hua was the most anticipated. Sure, there were guys like Dan Henderson, who was double champ, but Shogun stood out because of his age. At just 26 years old, he was just entering his prime, yet his achievements were staggering. he basically remained undefeated in pride since his only loss came against Mark Coleman when he horrifically dislocated his arm. Outside of that, he was perfect against some of the stiffest competition around. For example, take his run in the 2005 Middleweight Grand Prix, which was arguably the best ever. He beat Rampage Jackson, Antonio Rodrigo Nogueira, Alistair Overeem, and Ricardo Arona. And if not already impressive enough, then remember, he stopped all of them but Nogueira. But really, that was customary for Shogun, who, with 10 finishes and 12 wins in pride, was a finishing machine. So by the time his pride run was over, places like Sherdog had him listed as the best light heavyweight in the world. And realistically, his debut against Forrest Griffin was supposed to set up a rematch with Rampage or even showdown with Henderson after they unified the 205 belt a few weeks before Shogun's arrival. But Griffin made sure that didn't happen, shocking the MMA world by outworking and honestly outclassing Shogun before catching a rear naked choke, forcing a tap from Hua in the third thank you to the writer of today's video rob palin you can follow him on twitter at the robert palin and a big shout out to Lotten the casual veerkant for editing today's video and you really should follow him at lotton underscore veerkant on twitter shout out to ben rosette and the excellent music he provided during the intro video his music can be found on streaming platforms everywhere there is a link in the description and follow him at ben rosette on instagram and on twitter Thank you very much for watching everyone today. Please go ahead and like and subscribe if you did enjoy the content. We upload at least three videos every week for your viewing pleasure. Go ahead and leave a comment below if you want to join in the discussion and follow us on Twitter at MMA on Point and myself at Balian underscore plays. You can now jump in and join the community discord as well if you want to continue the discussion further. And I hope you've enjoyed yourselves. I'll see you in the next one.